So Matthew chapter 8, beginning at verse 18. The cost of following Jesus. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. So that, that reading um, is quite hard, isn't it? Uh, it's quite um, abrupt and quite direct and quite in our faces. And my, um, my plan tonight is not to make the reading any easier, um, but that we know what's expected of us as a result of what Jesus is saying. But before we get to the passage, uh, I just want to draw your attention to the stuff that's going on around the passage, around the text. Uh, there's a, a breathless series of events that go on around these verses in the middle. Uh, Jesus has just gone and uh, healed two people. Uh, they were sick and he makes them well. And then in uh, verse 8:16, he says, uh, When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. So Jesus heals two people, uh, and then he casts out some demons, and then with a word he heals people. And then when he's uh, done that, he goes and he calms the storm. Uh, the disciples are in a boat and with a word Jesus calms a storm and he brings peace. Uh, and then Jesus uh, goes on and he heals and he delivers more people. And in the, the middle of all of those breathless demonstrations of power, those acts of incredible grace and mercy and love, Jesus drops this passage, these words right in the middle. Sometimes we think that relationship with God means that Jesus just kind of fixes everything for us. He makes our lives more comfortable, more organised, more ordered. All of the problems that we have, uh, we think Jesus should just uh, fix them. He should put our, our life with a, a neat bow and make it uh, pleasing. But uh, this passage reminds us that Jesus challenges us. That yes, Jesus brings healing. Yes, he brings restoration. Yes, he sets us free. Yes, he brings peace. But he also challenges everything that we are. Uh, he refuses to let us stay the same. And he says abrupt, controversial words to each of us. He challenges us to live differently. Uh, we're going through the, the Gospel of Matthew, and tonight we're looking at priorities. So I want to ask you, uh, what's your priority tonight? What's your priority? Is Jesus your priority? Now, if you follow Jesus for a few years, it's, it's easy for you to immediately say, yep, Jesus is my priority. So if uh, you think Jesus is your priority, that's great. I have a second question for you which is, if Jesus is your priority, then where's your fruit? If Jesus is your priority, then where's your fruits? Often we say, yep, Jesus is my priority. And what we really mean by that is I've managed to fit um, reading three verses of the Bible uh, around the other stuff in my life. I've managed to fit um, my faith uh, in and around uh, climbing the career ladder, uh, in and around creating the, the family that I've always wanted, in and around uh, getting the right job, everyone liking me, everyone approving of me, and we, we make faith a thing that we slot in around everything else. Uh, but Jesus wants to be our priority. He wants to be the thing that affects and impacts every single aspect of our life. So if Jesus is our priority tonight, then where's our fruits? 
Jesus said that my uh, people will know who you are by your love for one another. People will know who you are by your love for one another. So uh, do your colleagues, do your friends, do your families who don't know Jesus, do they recognise there's something different and distinctive about you? Do they recognise there's something more loving, more gracious, and is that prompting them to ask you questions? Because we can really easily say that, yep, Jesus is our priority, but we don't actually understand the depth of what that means. If Jesus is your priority tonight, then what's the fruits? Where are you living that out? Where is he changing every area of your life? Jesus refuses to be boxed. He refuses to be contained. He refuses to be palatable and safe. But he wants every single part of our life. So as we think about uh, this passage tonight, keep coming back to the question, well, if Jesus is really my priority, then where's my fruit? Uh, How is he changing the way that I live? Uh, You might want to um, open your Bibles to our passage, uh, Matthew uh, 8 from 18 onwards. Uh, We're going to kind of dip uh, in and out and divide it up into chunks, so it'll be helpful for you to have it in front. Uh, But let's start with the the first bit uh, from verse 18. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. So Jesus is starting to draw a crowd. Uh, He's attracting a a whole load of people. Uh, It's it's worth spotting that the first thing that Jesus does uh, isn't build a wall, buy some comfortable chairs and put great coffee on after the service. Jesus doesn't do that. Uh, Jesus pulls a big crowd and then he moves. Jesus' concern isn't about uh, making his uh, community of followers as big as possible and making their lives as comfortable as possible and making himself as easy to follow as he possibly can. But Jesus is challenging people. He's provoking them. Uh, He wants them to to want relationship with him, to long for him. Uh, Jesus doesn't uh, always make himself easy to follow. Uh, He disturbs people. He provokes people. Uh, There's nothing about Jesus that's comfortable and safe, even though we can have a a good go at making him like that sometimes. And so Jesus moves across the lake, or starts to move across the lake. Uh, In the passage we hear that a teacher of the law comes to Jesus and he says, "I uh, I will follow you wherever you go. I will follow you wherever you go. Now, uh, a teacher of the law uh, is another word for a Pharisee. Uh, When we hear the word Pharisee in church, uh, often we know that that means that this is a a group of bad guys, basically. These are people who are trying to trip up, to undermine Jesus. They're trying to come against him. But this Pharisee has seen something in Jesus and he wants to learn from him. And he says, I will follow you wherever wherever you go. Now, if I I was um, in a moment of worship and I said to Jesus, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go, I would feel pretty pleased about myself. Uh, If you uh, said that to Jesus, you might think that you were showing an act of uh, devotion and obedience and love and grace towards Jesus. and uh, That was a laudable thing. I think the Pharisee thinks he's doing the right thing at this moment. And then Jesus uh, gives a slightly odd response. He says, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. That's a bit odd, isn't it? That's a slightly odd, unusual response because there's nothing in what the Pharisee is saying that's asking about sleeping arrangements. The Pharisee doesn't say, "Um, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go, but you need to know I'm a Hilton kind of guy. I I need a a solid hotel breakfast. I need this all to be... 
Don't fob me off with a travel lodge, with a premier inn. I'm not cheap. Bring me Hilton or bring me nothing. There's nothing in this uh, exchange between the Pharisee and Jesus that makes us think that he's in any way concerned about sleeping arrangements or accommodation. So we know there's something deeper going on. There's something deeper going on. Jesus uh, always looks beyond the words of the question to the heart of the questioner. He looks to the heart of the questioner. And he, uh, and he recognises there's something different going on in this Pharisee. The Pharisee calls Jesus teacher. And he says, I will follow you. Uh, he's doing uh, exactly what uh, a follower should do to their rabbi. Uh, he's doing exactly what a follower should do to their rabbi. He's approaching him in exactly the right way. See, because if you want to attach yourself uh, to a rabbi, you, you give them honour, you give them respect, you call them teacher. You say, I have something to learn from you. You have a, a particular understanding, a particular revelation of God, and I want to attach myself and learn as much as possible about that from you. And he's saying, I will follow you. I'll go wherever you go, wherever you decide uh, we're going, you're in charge. I, I submit myself to you because I want to learn everything that I possibly can from you. Uh, and this uh, Pharisee approaches Jesus like he's any other rabbi, but the problem is, is that Jesus isn't like any other rabbi. Jesus is a teacher unlike any other teacher. You see, because this Pharisee is a good student, it's implied in the text that he's a good student, that he'll take notes, that he'll be diligent, that he'll hand his homework in on time. And he's approaching Jesus like a good student should, but Jesus doesn't want good students. Jesus doesn't want us to be good students. He wants us to be passionately in love with him. Jesus doesn't want good students. He wants us to be passionately in love with him. See, sometimes we can turn our relationship with God into an exercise about trying to learn everything that we need to learn. It's about uh, us trying to gain as much understanding, as much insight. Uh, and so we, um, we study and we ask questions and we turn following Jesus into an academic pursuit. And uh, we turn uh, following Jesus uh, away from being a, a relationship that changes us and uh, shifts the way that we live. And we, we turn it into an attempt to understand as much about God as we possibly can. And understanding God is important, but, but he's also calling us deeper and beyond that. See, when we turn God into um, some kind of abstract academic reality, we make him very safe. We make him containable. We put him in a box. But Jesus says, I don't want you just to understand me. I want you to live like I do. Uh, when he says uh, the Son of Man has no place to rest his head, he's saying that you're going to be doing the things that I do. Uh, you're going to be uncomfortable like I'm uncomfortable. Uh, you can't uh, follow me at a safe academic distance, but you have to live the life that I live. You have to suffer the way that I suffer. You have to struggle the way that I struggle. Uh, have you allowed Jesus just to be a nice thought, a great discussion point, uh, something that you uh, know and you logic and you grapple, but, but he's not changed the whole way that you live? You're saying, Jesus, I want to follow you, I understand you, but, but do you really mean that? Do you really mean, Jesus, I want to know what it is to be in relationship with you. I'm willing to reorientate my whole life, to give up everything that I value, everything that I used to love, everything I used to put my trust in, Jesus, because I want to be in relationship with you. I wonder if sometimes we, we make God safe by turning him into that kind of God. And one of the things that happens then is our worship gets really, really boring. Our worship gets really, really boring because Jesus is just a, a thought-through idea. He's just a concept. He's just um, something we sit around and we discuss and we logic away. But when we recognise that Jesus is a, a living, breathing being, 
that he wants a deep relationship with us, that he wants us to reorientate our lives, that he's uh, radical and wild, that he refuses to be boxed and contained. He, he stops being something that we sing at and something that we engage with and we experience. See, if, if your worship, if your experience of God is really boring, it's really stale, it's really predictable, then you're not really worshipping the fullness of what Jesus is. Now, he wants everything that we are. He doesn't just want to be a nice idea. Uh, Jesus isn't finished. Uh, another person comes to him, a, a disciple. Now, uh, bear in mind, this is a disciple, not, um, not a Pharisee. This is someone who's already in the community. He's already in the, the thing that Jesus is building. He already knows who Jesus is. Uh, and he goes to Jesus and he says, Look, um, my father's dying. My father's dead. I need to go and bury him. There's a, a nuance in that um, exchange that we sometimes miss out. Uh, my father's dead doesn't necessarily mean quite what we think it means. Uh, it could mean two things. It, it could mean that uh, his father has died, he needs to go and bury him, but it, it could also mean uh, that his father is about to die and there are certain um, traditions and rites and rituals that need to be undertaken. But, but regardless, this is hugely important. Uh, this is a, a significant moment and the disciple wants to go and attend to it and be there. Uh, within the culture, um, there was one thing that was deemed to be um, sacred and holy and essential above everything else. Uh, it was called the Shema. It was a prayer that uh, the Jews would pray day after day and there was no excuse, no exception for not praying that prayer. They would say, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is the only God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. And they would uh, pray that prayer day after day and there was to be no exception and no excuse for not praying that prayer. Except in one circumstance. If your father had died. You see, even more essential than the most holy, most sacred prayer that you had to do regardless of all the circumstances was the death of your father. That was the, the most important uh, ritual, the most important rite, the thing that um, Jews were called to attend to before they attended to everything else was uh, honouring their dead father. And so uh, when this disciple comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, um, I need to go and bury my father, uh, he's not really asking permission. This is more of a, a courtesy request. Uh, if your father had died and you had to go and ask your boss for, for compassionate leave, uh, you would expect your boss to say yes. This isn't, uh, you're not really asking for permission because there's an expectation and understanding that they're going to let you go. But Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. You can't go bury your father. They're harsh words, aren't they? If your boss said that to you, you would kick off. You would push back. Uh, you wouldn't accept that at all. You would uh, try and resist it. You would uh, try and create another excuse, another alternative. You, you would make sure that you were at the the funeral of your father. But Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. There's something bigger at play here. Uh, Jesus is about to go to the lake, about to go across the lake, and he, he's going this way. And the disciple says, I need to go bury my father, but I'll, I'll catch you up. Uh, in other words, uh, he's allowing uh, this circumstance over here to dictate his relationship with Jesus. He's saying, uh, Jesus, I'll catch you up, I'll follow you. My relationship with you will continue uh, when I've attended to this thing. In other words, he's, he's letting Jesus know that actually he's interested in following him, but his main priority uh, is his family. His main priority is in attending to the death of his father. And we can uh, understand that. We can understand why someone would want to do that. 
But the problem is, is that whenever we let something become more significant in our lives, whenever we let something else take more authority, uh, determine how we live, that isn't Jesus, that means we've created an idol. And Jesus has no sympathy for idols. Jesus has no uh, time, he won't abide them, he can't stand them, and he will always push back and demolish them. Even though we, we understand why this uh, disciple's trying to do what they're doing, they're creating an idol out of family that's getting in the way of their relationship with Jesus. And Jesus is saying, no, no, I'm your number one priority. I'm the thing that you base your whole life around. Uh, other things can happen. Uh, other situations, other circumstances can develop and change and shift. But, but Jesus is the thing that we base our life around. Uh, have you made him your number one priority? Uh, is he uh, dictating and changing the way that you live in every area of your life? Have you set him as the source of your uh, ultimate authority? Is he the one that you look to, the one that you turn to before you turn to everything else? Or have you allowed him to be a, a safe addition to your life? Uh, along with getting your kids into the right school. Uh, along with uh, trying to build the perfect family that you really um, want, along with trying to pass your degree, have you made Jesus an addition to a lifestyle that you're comfortable with uh, rather than the thing that dictates the way that you live? Uh, are you allowing him to change and shape everything? Because that's what Jesus is calling us to. He isn't calling us to half-hearted devotion. He refuses to be uh, an addition, a bolt-on. He will be nothing other than our absolute priority. That sounds like quite a challenge, doesn't it? That's quite a, a hard way for us to live. And it, uh, there, are, there are parts of uh, my life where I'm trying to work out what is it for God to be my priority, to be the thing that I look to before anything else, who shapes the way that I live. But last weekend I, um, I went somewhere uh, and I, I met a whole group of people who are living like that, for whom Jesus is their absolute priority. And he's shaped and he's forever changed the way that they'll live. You see, in seeing them and meeting them, I know that this is difficult. There's a challenge in this, there's a sacrifice and a cost in this that sometimes I don't want to pay. But in seeing them and meeting them, I'm reminded that it's absolutely possible. It's absolutely possible. Uh, last weekend, I am. Um, uh, I was down in uh, Doncaster with Alice and we were at uh, the Home for Good conference. For those of you that don't know, uh, Home for Good uh, is an organisation that's passionate uh, about getting the church uh, across the UK, churches just like this one, to take fostering and adoption seriously. To recognise that there are children who need uh, loving, supportive families and that we have a, a place to play in that. And during the, the day, we were split up uh, into different uh, groups in one of the seminars, and um, my group was given a, a case study to read. And we were given a, a case study about uh, a boy called Jack. Uh, Jack, who's 11 years old, and it was a, a completely fictitious, completely made-up case study that someone had written on the train on the way up. Um, it was um, all completely abstracted, and then someone in our group read out the case study, uh, and we started to talk about it. And within... Uh, a minute or so, uh, the man to my left had started to cry. Like, not just a little bit, but in a way that was distracting for the conversation that we were all trying to have. And he started to cry and sob, and then uh, 30 seconds later, the man straight across the group from me started to cry as well. And I, I wanted to go to them and, and say, look, no, 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 don't worry about it, you, you don't understand. This, um, this story is, is made up. It's completely fictitious. Jack isn't real. He's not really having these problems at school. There's no 11-year-old kid called Jack, so you just... 
Just calm down, settle down, and we'll have a good conversation. And I realised that to those two people, Jack isn't a made-up child. To those two people, Jack is the name and the face of children who have passed through their doors. See, when they uh, hear about Jackie's having problems at school, they remember all the times that they've gone into school and had battles with teachers, trying to get their child the support that they need. Whenever they uh, hear that story and read those words, they remember the times they've been up in the night, changing the bed, trying to get their kids to go back to sleep. You see, uh, their lives have been forever disrupted, forever changed, forever altered, because they understand that they have a loving Jesus who's their number one priority. And they've changed the whole course of their lives, and the expression of that is fostering and adopting. There's someone else got up to share later on, and they, they, um, they talked uh, about a range of things, but they started by, by talking about their family situation. And they said, uh, we adopt four children. Uh, one of them is uh, severely partially sighted, and the other is completely blind. Do you want to know the most scandalous thing? Is that nobody applauded. No one clapped. There wasn't a standing ovation. There wasn't a gasp or a, a sigh of pity or anything, but the room was completely silent. You see, because of course you would adopt those children. Of course you would. Because that's the most natural, most normal thing in the world. You see, when Jesus has completely disrupted and, and reorientated your life, when you're so uh, overwhelmingly consumed with love for him, of course you would stop for these vulnerable children. Of course you would give up uh, your own belief in your claim for success and material comfort and your own desire to create a perfectly uh, ordered, successful life. Of course you would give all that up because this child matters. At the start of the day, someone said, uh, when we welcome these vulnerable children, we welcome Jesus. When we welcome these vulnerable children, we welcome Jesus. You see, for them, this is just an expression of their worship. They recognise that whenever they uh, change the bed for that child, whenever they go into school to get the extra support that adoptive or foster child needs, they are worshipping Jesus. They've completely reorientated and reprioritised their lives. Do we live like that? Do I look at my life and I see that there are so many areas where I selfishly want to keep control. I selfishly want things to be um, comfortable and easy and accessible because it feels good. And it makes me feel secure and safe in the only little world I construct myself. But are we reprioritizing? Are we saying, Jesus, not our will but yours, not our kingdom but yours, not our priorities but yours, Jesus? Are we living like that? There are loads of different ways that can express itself in our faith. Loads of different ways. The reason I want to talk about adoption and fostering is because that's something you can't close the door on. When you close the door at night and you, you draw the curtains, if you're an adoptive uh, parent or a foster carer, then those children are still in your home. It's not something that um, stays outside, but that you live with 24-7. Jesus, uh, Jesus refuses to be an Adam. He refuses to be something that we safely and securely attach to our life. Uh, but instead, he wants to be our complete priority. He wants to be the thing that we base our life around. So if you think that Jesus is your priority tonight, that's, that's the most beautiful thing in the world. But where's the fruit in that? Where are the places in your life where you've allowed him to, to change you and shape you and mould you? It might be that you're, you're looking at your life and you think, ah, Jesus, I want Jesus to be my priority, but, but my life doesn't quite match up to that. There's always grace 
Jesus always gives us room to ask for forgiveness and to move on and to begin again. The reason that we get to do this, to make Jesus our priority, is because he first prioritised us. You were his priority. Uh, he loved you. He cared for you. He sent his son to die for you. We love because he first loved us. He's our priority because we were first his priority. So maybe you need to experience and encounter that and understand that. But as we do that, how are we going to live differently? How are we going to change the way that we're living so that we recognise that Jesus is the thing that we base our life around? He changes the whole of our life, not just the safe compartment that we want to keep in.